I'm looking at some Yankee haters here, I can just tell. <laughs> <laughs> They're all saying, yes, yes, <laughs> go on. Uh, let's go to some fiction. The thing that's different about fiction editing at The New Yorker and the whole process of fiction is that uh, this, almost everything is different. It's not like other forms of editing, starting with the fact that uh, rejection is the main thing that we do, we fiction editors, is say no. It's the number one thing. And uh, in the world at large, people say, oh my God, the New Yorker never buys anything, but we are trying to buy, we're trying to buy, but basically we're saying no, it's not good enough, it's not good enough. And we say this to everybody. Um, we get this constant flow of manuscripts from unknown writers, as well as a lesser flow that goes through agents from very well-known writers, world-famous writers, some of them. And everyone, all those writers are wondering if by chance we're going to say yes. Um, I think we now send back about 10 or 12,000 stories every year. Um, it used to be about 15 or 16,000 because about 30 years ago we were running three pieces of fiction every week. We had the main thing once you got by Talk of the Town was the story, and there was the second story, and then there was what we call sea fiction to ourselves, the ABC was in the back of the book, a great place for young writers to begin. And that has dwindled away, and we now have one story in the magazine in New York is very different. The modern, wonderful, high-speed, great reporting, amazing modern-day New Yorker uh, doesn't have much fiction in it. But to me, fiction is still numero uno. If you think what the New Yorker would be like with no fiction in it, we would change our character entirely. We would be a different kind of a magazine. We would be like a lot of other magazines, and this is what sets us apart. And uh, from top to bottom, Young writers, fiction writers, want to be in the New Yorker. This is the place they want to get into. And we want them to get to be there, too. Uh, it's, um, once there, um, I think that editing, editing fiction, again, is entirely different because uh, you were, this is not something that's been assigned. Uh, all, the, all the stuff that what you people deal with, this is something that you know about in advance has been assigned. To the, you know who the writer is, what, uh, what is expected, and when it comes in, you then work on it. But uh, what we get to deal with is something that didn't exist until a few weeks or days before. It's just, it's completely made up and, and something brand new. Like it or not, it's art. And you edit art with uh, a certain amount of caution, but also uh, you want to make it better. You want to help this writer say what they're trying to say. And that goes for writers of any level, brand new ones or uh, the very best. Uh, John Updike um, knows exactly what he's doing, but he's become a collaborator. He uses me uh, to become his own collaborator in a way. And if we've taken a story, which is very likely, we don't take every single story of his or of anybody's, but uh, if something is in hand, Updike becomes an editor because, and then he shows me what he's edited. Uh, basically, my part is to watch John edit himself. And of all the writers I know, he edits himself more and more intensely and 
further and further along in the process. He still wants to see the page proof, which we don't do anymore. We used to send out the first proof, the author's proof, and then another proof, and then the page proof, which is the proof just before we close. Updike still asked, as he said, I see the page proof, but this is now done over the phone, probably to him, because it's going to close that day. And he, is, he has two or three changes he wants to make, and he has written, rewritten another paragraph, done it differently, slightly differently. And he says to me over the phone, how does this sound? How does this sound? Is this better than this? Is this better than that? Um, and I will say which one I prefer. And he said, probably you're right. Uh, <laughs> not because I am right, but the main thing about fiction is that it is so bloody hard. It is so difficult to get this stuff right. Um, it's, it's difficult to deal with, with uh, English in any form and to, and to get this wonderful language to do what you want it to do. Um, uh, tone, tone is, is what this comes down to, how this sounds, how, what the reader is going to make out of this thing. Um, I remember so often ending up sitting with a writer by my side. It's better that way than on the phone or by letter, which we used to do. Uh, looking at some passage, William Maxwell, when we ran So Long to See Tomorrow, that great last novel of his, which ran in Toto in the magazine. He and I would sit together, and he had been my editor. He was, the, he was a fiction editor at The New Yorker as well. Uh, he was my editor, and I was his editor, which is a nice process we've done quite often. And we would be looking at a passage, and we would not be able to solve, not be able to make this question come out right. Um, I think this is, this is what excites me about the whole thing, about uh, helping a writer uh, not to get it right, but, but to go to some other place. And you become silent before the difficulty of this thing. I remember saying to Maxwell one passage about this, it's still not clear. And Maxwell saying, eventually, he'd look and he'd say, well, I don't want to be too clear. <laughs> which is true only of a fiction writer, because fiction writers don't want to be too clear. I mean, there's something else going on. Um, William Trevor uh, tells me that he relies on me deeply to edit, I mean, as his editor. But when the story of his comes in, um, I always try to remember is what we're trying to save here are the silences. The silences of William Trevor, what his fiction is all about. This pauses, the empty places in an empty, empty lives, which he does so brilliantly. And I talk with him on phone, on the phone. He lives in Devon and uh, has a farm there. <coughs> and we talk on the phone and I say, well, there's a place on page five where this character needs to be more, a little clearer or uh, maybe he should come in on page five or something like that. And he says, I quite take your point, and that's all I have to do, because then he takes it back. And he does less than I think he's going to do. Less. He moves a few things, a little tiny shift to come back. He said, what does he change? What does he change? You can see, and he is taking care of it. It's, it's quite surprising. Um, there are famous New Yorker editing stories. Uh, Vladimir Nabokov. Uh, Davis, he, I still think of him as maybe our numero uno, the greatest writer of fiction, the great, great New Yorker's great genius. Uh, he and Saul Steinberg were maybe the two magazines, two true geniuses. Uh, Nabokov gave us Speak Memory and uh, the Panin stories and a lot of other wonderful stories. My mother was his editor. She was the fiction editor of the New Yorker. 
And there was, and back in Harold Ross's day, when he was the editor, he would send these famous these lists of questions he would send out to, uh, to authors, uh, 10 or 15 or 20 questions, most of which you could overlook. But there were the fourth of the 15th were essential questions. In the middle of one of the passages in Speak Memory, there's a, there's a family is sitting out to describe the Nabokovian terms, sitting out in the sunlight having a fabulous picnic. And someone says, uh, or there's a mention of past the nutcracker, or the sun gleamed off the nutcracker, something like this. And Ross had written a note beside this, and the note said, judging by what Mr. Nabokov has told us about his family today, I would have thought that the Nabokovs were a more than one nutcracker family. <laughs> <laughs> and Nabokov looked at this with wonder, and I can just hear him laughing, because he laughed at the whole idea of anybody editing Nabokov, uh, changed it to a nutcracker. So it was not, there was more than one nutcracker there. Um, after Nabokov died, uh, I, I got to edit one of his stories while he was alive, and he was—he gave me a lot of trouble. Of, he insisted on keeping the German word for sofa, which I've forgotten. I didn't know, and he had it in the story, and I kept sending it back and saying that nobody will know what this is. And and he would write back and said, "You don't know what the German word for sofa is?" And I said, "No, I don't. I'm sorry." And he reluctantly, reluctantly gave way and changed it, but. Uh, uh, we received, uh, after he died, we received two or three stories of his previously unpublished that he'd written when he was in his 20s and living in uh, Berlin and was a beginning writer. And these were clearly, there was wonderful to come on this, uh, clearly the real thing, but also clearly the writings of a young writer. And we discussed, of course, we were going to publish them.